this time I'm joined by the founding figure of Dutch Rugby League, Ian Thompson. Good evening, Ian. How are you? Hi, Graham. Superb, mate. Well, brilliant over here, plus 30, so relaxing in the sunshine all day and looking forward to having a talk. Good. And where is over here? Ian, where are you based at the moment? I live in a little village called Nodorp, which is um, on the on the on the edge of Danhag, between Danhag, Delft, um, twenty minutes from Rotterdam, half an hour from Amsterdam. So very central, Graham. Very oh, central. Okay. Well, listen, Ian, we're recording this podcast in advance to when it'll go out, and it's actually we're recording it on the same day of the sad passing of uh, Simon Cooper, who was a founding figure of of Germany Rugby League and I know that you were a friend of his and worked hand in hand. How, how are you feeling today, Ian, about it all? Yeah, it's a sad time, Graham. Uh, I, I, I followed Simon's uh, battle for the last four or five years, you know, and uh, yeah, it's, it's it, it gets you. I mean, Simon's only a young boy, he's got a, a wife and a young kid still at home. Um, I mean, I I first met Simon in 2003. He came down to the uh, Rotterdam Nines and to talk about setting up rugby league in, in Germany. From the offset, you could see, we could sense his enthusiasm, his passion, and his energy. And you knew that uh, he was a guy that was, he loved the game and he would deliver it to Germany, yeah. Um, the guy was also very proud of his. German heritage because his father was born in Germany. He wasn't afraid to make personal sacrifices to reach his goals. A guy that was always full of honesty and, and dignity. Never wanted any praise for, for the work he'd done, Graham. You know, he was always wanted to sit in the background. Taking away too young, mate. Taking yeah. away too young. Indeed. I mean, my thoughts now is that he's. This time is for his, for his wife and uh, young daughter. You know, we, we've we've lost a true warrior. They've lost a, a very very close and lovable father and husband. And yeah, it's it's tough, mate. And just condolences to the family and everybody connected with Simon. Uh, it's a it's a big loss to everybody, including the game of rugby. A big loss, mate. Absolutely, absolutely, Ian, and, and we likewise pass on our condolences to his family. And I suppose, I mean, I was, I feel very privileged to have had that conversation with him a few weeks ago, and and very pleased that what he contributed is now recorded for people to hear about in in, in the future. And and for me, whatever happens in the future for 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 Germany Rugby League, they'll always be indebted to to Simon Cooper. I think that would be a fitting tribute to him. Of course, Graham. I mean, the, these podcasts are going to be there for forever. Historical references to the game of rugby league, and as you said, you know, Simon was the man, and he's now got a memory of everybody. Will know that what Simon put in to get the game going in Germany, and that could be five years down the road, or a hundred years down the road. A true legend, a true warrior, mate, and yeah. Very, very sad. Indeed, totally agree, uh, Ian. So listen, you and Simon had a, a bit of a similar background. You both came from traditional rugby league areas, but of course you were to, to go on and move to pastures new. But I ask everybody this, uh, Ian, what's your first memory of rugby league? My first memory of rugby league? 
probably sitting in my mother's house in Brigham, looking over to the other village over the water, Broughton, and seeing two rugby posts sticking up, and I'm thinking, what's that? And I'm maybe 13, 14 year old. Never yep. ventured over that bridge to the other side of the water for another two or three years. But rugby league, out of soccer man, believe it or not, Workington Town, you know, at the time weren't a great side. Workington Reds were in the football league and out of soccer man. But the strange thing about that as well is when I went to school in the village, the junior school, there was an old man that used to potter about in the garden and lean on the gate as we'd leave school and always speak and say hello. And it was a guy called Gus Risman. And it wasn't until later on in life I realised who this polite old gentleman standing by the school gates every night and putting them on his garden was such a, a legend of Gus Risman. Eh? So they're, they're the two memories, looking over at Broughton and, and this old guy called Gus Risman who had a driving school. And his name was on top of the car, but it never, ever rang a bell until later on in life who this, this gentleman was there. Eh? Strange. Well- we, we share that, Ian, because, uh, I mean, obviously, we'll, we'll come on to John Rizman, but obviously his brother Bev, and I, I remember being at my first Scottish students uh, gathering, and uh, it was the home nations, four student teams in one uh, in one hotel, and I got sent down to collect some kit for Scotland, and I had a nice chat with us, you know, quite a sturdy but small guy who seemed to know an awful lot about rugby league and rugby union, and I came back and someone said, you've just met the legend that is Bev Rizman, so son of Gus, of course, so there was me as well, unbeknownst to union. Mm. The presence of people have achieved so much, and it probably speaks to all that family their their way, their unassuming, uh, unassuming ways. So, you, so you, so you obviously you got into the rugby league, and of course you, you began to make some progress, didn't you? Because you you actually started to you played for Workington, didn't you? Yeah, what what happened, Graham? We at school back in West Cumbria, we were all rugby union schools, um, and I'll be honest with you, I, I was decent level of rugby union. I played county level. And then I got to 15, 16 year old, a lot of the other boys that were playing with us were going to a, a village three, four miles away called Broughton Moor, who had an under 18 team. So they said, come on, have a go up to rugby league. And the thing about Broughton Moor was it was a village in between Cockmouth and Maryport. And you had all these guys from Netherhall School and Derwent School and Broughton Red Road Rugby Club, Maryport Rugby Club, Ellenbury Glasson. And they were all rivals. And then all of a sudden, on a Sunday afternoon, you'd get 20 guys from all these rivalries coming together to form a very, very good village team called Broughton Moor. And I played at that under-18 level when I was 15. And we were a good side. But in the county at that time, there was a club called Wathbrow Hornets, and they were probably one of the best teams in England at under-18s. And we lost every final to them. But that's the level we were playing at. Yeah. A lot of guys got signed up from Broughton Moor or from the senior clubs. And then from that, I went down to Broughton Red Rose, which was the 2-6 I'd seen from my mother's house all them years ago. Played a year and a half at Broughton Red Rose and was lucky enough for Mr Tom Mitchell to come and sign me professional. And I went down to Workington as an 18-year-old. Yeah, and played top class football for nearly ten years, Graham. Yeah, at and in that, level. Time, you, in that time, you played alongside John Risman, didn't you? At Workington, is that right? When I broke into the first team, Rizzo was uh, my centre, and right. uh, 
Paul Charlton was the fullback, another legend. Les Peter, Les and Peter Gawley, boxer walker. I mean, I walked into a very, very good work in the town side that had just come off the back of the first Lancashire Cup victory. And Rizzo actually took me under his wing, you know. He was experienced player. I was a young kid on the block. And yeah, John John looked after me and taught me a lot of the, the let's say, John's nonsense of the game of Rugby League. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, listen, I, I didn't have the same career. I was briefly at Workington. But funnily enough, I'd also had a couple of games at Carlisle and the coach was Paul Charlton. And he was an absolutely legendary figure, you know, a Great Britain fullback, wasn't he? And a really hard hard and skillful player without a doubt so i mean you had that professional career so so just you know what was your what was your first experience of maybe moving into sort of development areas or was it just straight over to holland or what, what no 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 i um i stopped playing professional about maybe i was 28 years old i had a, I had a bad injury I played barry in a cumbria cup final and woke up with a broken nose and a broken ankle thanks to steve rip kirby and that more or less finished me. Um, I never got back to full fitness. Went to White Devon, played about 10 games for White Devon. And then I called it a stop on the professional game. And I actually went away to work down into Devon and then ended up in North Wales. Okay. In a, a place called Landuno. And me and a guy called Bernard Duffy, his boy used to play for Rochdale Hornets. Bernard was a Rochdale fella. We got together um, and we set up a rugby league club out of Andunno <laughs> in the heart of North Wales Rugby Union district. And that was yep. a, that was a, the probably the first time I looked at developing rugby league outside the traditional area. Okay. Yeah. So, what, what, so you, you know, you, as you say, you grew up with football, but you got into rugby league, made a pro club. So what was that? What was that thing in you that said, well, listen, I've landed here, there's no rugby league, so I want to create some. What, have you reflected on what, what, what was it? What, what made you do that? thing is, Graham, people say life doesn't know you anything and you don't know life anything. But honestly, mate, that, I had such a great career at rugby. And I, I, w- I went back after professionals and I coached in the local West Cumbria League and I coached Broughton and Cockmouth and Allardale and assistant coach with Tommy Thompson to the county. And I, I just felt that I've had a great career out of rugby. Let's try and give it back to anybody that wants to play the game. Huh? Yeah. You know, I've nothing against rugby union, nothing against soccer, but all of a sudden I, I felt like let's try and push rugby league into as many places as we can and, and let people see what it's about. Okay. That, yeah. that was basically, I think it, yeah. Yeah. So how did you find yourself in Holland? Again, work. Um, We'd, we'd been working up in Nick Bay in Scotland and the job was coming to a close, so one or two other boys said, right, where are we going next? Somebody said Germany, and I said, let's go to the Netherlands. I'd been there before. I'd, I'd uh, met a girl five, ten years before. So I'd been in the country. I said, let's go to the Netherlands. So four of us came to Amsterdam to work. And... Uh, I got stuck here. They they finished after twelve months, eighteen months, and I uh, I actually stayed in Holland. Graham met met the girl again, ended up with her, got married to her. Now uh, we've got a ten year old daughter, and uh, yeah, I stayed in the Netherlands 
and went back to playing soccer, believe it or not, in the village. Yeah. Everything in the village, everything in Holland is soccer. Everything is soccer. Yeah. Yeah. And they said, if you want to make friends, go to a local football club. So I played three, four years at soccer. Yeah, okay. So you know you you're over there again. You're in that similar circumstance. There's no there's no rugby league around you. So initially you got you got involved with some of the Dutch rugby union team. Is that right? Yeah, I I, uh, I found out Rotterdam had a decent level rugby club. So me and the wife used to go and watch them, and uh, we'd go and watch them at home, and we'd, we'd get into the conversations with people and visiting teams. Yeah, the crack was good. Um, and then I said to the wife, I wonder if anybody's interested in playing rugby league. So social media wasn't really big at the time. Yeah. And I think it might have been on an English website forum or something. And I asked any people in Holland want to get together and have a look at what we can do. And a couple of guys were working in Dan Haag uh, from Bradford, they were. Stuart Webster was one of them. Met up with them. They were playing out of a rugby union club in Reitwijk, which is five miles away. Teverva, they were called. So they started getting the Teverva boys interested. We had a few training sessions. And then uh, we got a phone call from a guy called Stuart Hogg at Essex Eagles in England. He'd heard about it. Wanted to bring a team over, give us a game. So, yeah, OK, bring it on. Stuart flew his boys in on the Saturday morning, played a game of rugby league, I refereed it, got beat, had a few drinks, and that was the start of it. Yeah, and the best thing about it was, Graham, talking about legends, the president of Tewerva Rugby Club was a guy called Jim Tate, who was the uncle of Alan Tate. Oh. So, you know, it's small circles. And, know? of course, Alan Tate's father was born in Workington. Alan Tate, he used to play hooker for town, yeah. Yeah. yeah so right. that was a good connection to make straight away, you know. Jim Tate and Alan Tate and his his, his brother played at Workington. Yeah, so that's that's basically how we set up with the rugby league in, in Holland there. So what year what year was that, Ian? Do you recall? That would be two thousand and two, around about that time. Okay. So what, what what did that begin to spawn? What was the momentum that got you? Because <laughs> it's funny, you know, when you introduce lads to rugby league. There, there's something for a lot of them clicks, doesn't it? You know, I found yeah. found a game. It um, the next step we decided to go a little bit higher and we entered the York Nines. Uh, can you remember the York Nines? Graham? I do. I, I used to be involved with a club called Leeds Ackies, and yeah, in the yeah. York Nines, yeah, it was run, yeah. run by Lionel Hurst. If it was a full chaplain, I think, was involved in that. Yep, so it was. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we took a team over the York Nines, and it was a two day event. And we got absolutely smashed. We did, we did not realise the quality of opposition. <laughs> I've got a photograph of a big fall from Kazakhstan. Kazakh, can you remember them boys? The Kazakhstan yeah. team? Yeah. And he's, he's just creased me. I mean, I was 39, 40 year old. Eh? And uh, it was a bit embarrassing, to be honest. And the next day, we still to get a side out. And Stuart had to actually phone up Dudley Hill in Bradford to get some boys down to complete the, the competition. And yeah, that was our next adventure. And then out after that, Graham, your your friend, Kevin Rudd, got in touch. <laughs> we, yeah. we, we'd, um, we'd been invited down to 
by Tarbate Ari down to the Rugby League European Federation inaugural meeting in Paris. And I was going, we've only played one game in a seven-a-side tournament. But OK, we'll go down, listen to what they've got to say. And again, you mix him with the likes of Richard Lewis and Jean-Pierre Fiara, Fiara was it? Yeah. Uh, Usama Barkey was there, Tiziano from Italy, and, you know. And then after that initial meeting, the phone call came from Kevin. Yeah, Ian, we're going on tour to Italy and Serbia with Scotland Day and Scotland students. We'd like to stop off in the Netherlands. Do you think you can give us a game? Oh, yeah, OK. <laughs> one, of, one of Kevin Carrad's magical bus, bus journeys, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a task, but I had another guy called... Um, Stuart Barker, he was working for the Europol in Den Haag and he played rugby league in the varsity game for Oxford University. Right. So Stuart uh, was involved with this a little bit and he, he got in touch with a guy called Paul Johnson, who was the coach of Oxford University. I got in touch with some rugby union guys, especially guys from the east of Holland, a place called Hengelo, low level. And Paul came over two weekends and got a training session together. We knew we weren't strong enough to take on the Scotland Day or the Scotland students. So we, we actually got some guys from the British Army over in Germany, which is just over the border from Hengelo. Um, Paul brought some Oxford students over. I got some Dutch International Rugby Union players involved. And on the night, we put out two teams in a place called Sassenheim. Basically a Dutch development team which got absolutely destroyed by the Scottish students. And then we put what I would call a Duke Rep team out in, against Scotland A, and we got beat 22-18 with a guy called Fletcher, hooker from Gateshead Thunder. Yeah, rings a bell, yeah. that. Yeah, scored, in the, scored in the last minute to sneak the game away from us. It wasn't really a Duke side, but it was, it was a... I, I, my thought, Graham, would the, the common here, they spend a lot of money going to it. We've got to at least be competitive. Yeah. And we, we had 400 people watching. Your famous Scottish piper led all your Scottish boys through the middle of the village in the afternoon with a bag blaring to get publicity. Sky Sports was there. We got a 15-minute, 12-minute section on uh, Boots and All programme. So it was a it was a massive boost in a in a a wake-up call to what could be achieved. Yeah. And just what 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 did you witness to those lads, you know, maybe rugby union lads predominantly, or just lads who find rugby league for the first time? What well, the kind of reaction you get? You know, these guys you could be they could be young as 17, 18, but they might be late twenties, thirties and stuff, first taste of it. What was what's the kind of general reaction you got? <sighs> I mean, I, I've still got this clip that was on Boots and All. I look back on it and you've got the Dutch Rugby Union captain and the Dutch international prop forward. And they are, what a great game. We didn't realise how good this game was. And, you know, and yes, everybody seems to think, wow, why have we not seen this before? Why have we not been introduced to it before? And it does, it makes you want to ask them, well, come on, let's push this forward. But my experience was, Graham, that it took me about three or four years till I actually got a group of guys 
that were going to um, play rugby league as a as a sport that they enjoyed doing and wanted to play, rather than as an excuse just to have a run around on the field. You know, it was it was a strange situation because a lot of them boys that played against the Scotland teams never came back for another game. Huh? Right. You know, um, people say, "Yeah, sure, in the game and it will happen." In my experience, a lot of it doesn't. You know, if you if you're targeting rugby union boys who've been brought up on rugby union, it's difficult, and they've got a good club structure. It's difficult to convince them to de- dedicate themselves to even if it's just an off season of rugby league. That, that's what I find, mate. Yeah. Okay. And and obviously part of that is creating a rep structure. So, you know, you when was the first time that Holland took the you know the Netherlands team formally took the pitch. Hmm. If I look back, it would be Serbia. I think our I think our first international game would be when we organised uh, an, an ambi- ambitious full week of rugby it, uh, in Rotterdam. Again, Kevin and the Scotland students came over. Serbia came over and the Dutch came over and all three sides had two teams Graham right. so on the Tuesday night we had uh, Scotland students A and Scotland students B versus Serbia A and Serbia B on the Thursday night we had uh, Scotland students against the Holland and the A and the B yep. then on the Saturday we had a 12 team nine side tournament and then on the Sunday probably the first official international game was Netherlands against Serbia. And that would be, I think that would be our first international game. Okay. Proper rep game without any any um, any ringers or anything like that. It was a, a proper international game, yeah. Quite a moment. Quite a moment for everybody, isn't it? Those pulling on the jersey, family and friends, from whatever it's born it, out of, you know, it, it, it's a still a big moment, isn't it? It it, it was. I mean, and it was a step to show them, guys. You know, we we can be playing international level of rugby league, even though you might not be good enough to play rugby union. Because again, I'm still relying ninety percent or seventy five percent on rugby union based Dutch boys and a few English boys with rugby league experience, like um, Stefan Rhodes from East Mirror, who was a a Dutch rugby union, and he came over and played rugby league. So he was probably the first dual international. Yeah, and uh, Mike Muir from Essex Sales. So we had a four or five rugby league experience boys, but the rest were lower level rugby union boys that stood no chance of playing international football at rugby union. But they were proud to be Dutchmen that day, and they were. They, they, they were proud to pull on the orange shirt, Graham. It was, it was brilliant. It was brilliant, mate. And it must have been proud for you as well to see that born out of that initial beginnings and that initial desire of yours. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a target that that that, that uh, we'd looked at. And um, I'll tell you, an old friend of yours, Keith Davis, was the coach of that team. I got Keith over to come and help us out, yeah. West Cumbrians yeah. again, Risman with the Scottish students, me and Keith with the Dutch, it was West Cumbrian party. But yeah, it, it was um, 
Party being the operative word there, man. <laughs> I mean, it, it, to be honest with you, Graham, the whole tournament was an ambitious tournament. We'd, we'd done nothing, really. We'd had no club structures. And there we were, organising a full week of carnival football. Eh? But it, it went down It went down well. And after that, then I think I got a lot more interest in, in boys wanting to play the game. And we started actually to play a few club games and uh, the rugby union clubs I was getting involved with were, were taking it on board. There's no animosity from them. Um, and did that did it help that you'd been in the rugby union ranks and knew people? Because there can be animosity. You know, it has, it has gone on, competitive moving into discrimination and so on. But did you, you manage to sort of dampen that down because of you, you knew the rugby union personnel? At the higher level in Holland, there was a lot of animosity towards us. And when I, I look back, I had a meeting with them one time and they said to me, uh, well, uh, it's the same people fishing in a small pond for the same players. And I can understand the attitude, the worry that another game of another code of rugby was going to come in and reduce their capabilities of getting players while we were after the same school of players. I can understand that. As for the clubs, Graham, I mean, the first game we played when Kevin brought the students over was at a, a village in Sassenheim, just south of Amsterdam. And I actually went on to course them later after that. The Hooker Holland, Teverva, Rotterdam, Sparta. We, we had no animosity at club level whatsoever. They allowed access to players, they allowed access to facilities. Um, and again, maybe it's because I was involved with these clubs that that, that was allowed to happen. I don't know. But they were willing to they were willing to help us out. Yeah. And of course the Rotterdam Nines became a fixture for a while. I think that attracted some attention, didn't it? We, we, see, the, the, the Nines event to me was an ideal tool to get boys into playing without having them to commit themselves to a, a full 15 or a full season or a or 10 club games or whatever. And we, we, we had teams coming from Serbia, Scotland, uh, Nottingham, uh, Heavy Woolen Donkeys, Oxford University, Brought Red Rose. The first year we had 12 teams, the second year we had 16 teams. And it, it was going it was going well. And it was used as a tool to introduce Dutch players as well. And it was it was good. It was interesting. Yeah. But yeah. one problem we had, Graham, um, we couldn't really get a club domestic competition going. Doesn't matter how we tried. One of the problems that people don't understand in Holland at the end of May, beginning of June, you're talking in the early 2000s now, all sports fields closed down for summer maintenance. Right. We, we had no way to play. It was as simple as that. The rugby union season was finishing, then all fields were closing down. Soccer fields, rugby fields, and they weren't opening up again until August. So we were playing club games. We had two teams coming in. We had Clockface Miners come over, Leyland Warriors, Essex Hills again, Leeds University, and we were trying to fit them in around the rugby union schedule. I mean, Leeds University came over on a Thursday night, and I used it as a full trainer session to play the Bassett Sassenheim Ruby Union Club against them. And 
it was a whole rugby union team playing rugby league on a Thursday night against the touring team. And that's all we could achieve. We had no facilities to play rugby on after the first of June, mate. And that was a big haul back to the to the whole setup. Now, I might get this wrong, but was there a team called Heavy Woolen Donkeys that came and played in the Netherlands? Heavy Woolen Donkeys, Tim Wilkinson, Tim yeah, Hardcastle. Yeah. Tim, I thought it was a great name. And Zaki's as well, and I recall him taking teams over there quite regular. I think it was one of his favourite countries to visit with that team. I mean, Tim and them were a. I think they were a social. I don't think they were in any competition back in the UK. I think they're a load of old rugby players. You could call them what is now masters, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, yes, I would call them a touring team. I think a touring team. Yes, yes. It would probably um, be efficient. Yeah, I tell you what, the heavy woolen donkeys—they were—they were very good. I mean, they came to Rotterdam Nines, and uh, Tim and Tim Tim Wilkinson and Tim Harcastle were actually helping me prepare the field on the morning of the tournament, marking the line. This is something the other out, you know. On on the Sunday, we, after the second night, we, we played a German team at nine aside because uh, again going back to Simon, he brought the team over. But there'd been a big accident on the motorway, so half the boys couldn't get to the venue. So we ended up playing an nine side tournament. And again, one of the heavy, early, heavy Woolen Donkeys boys, Phil, he refereed the game. Tim Hardcastle was the linesman. You know, they were absolutely brilliant towards us, the Heavy Woolen Donkeys. Yeah, brilliant. So the, the, the international, you know, SA continues and you get yourself involved in, in World Cup qualifying. And I think one of the great high spots was playing Georgia away. Talk us through that occasion. Well, the, the thing is, Graham, I, I got, finally got to set a group of guys, as I said before. And Aaron Diego came out of Australia. Um, give, give us some notice. So he came, he was, he was playing at Underbank in England, but he was, came to Holland to play. Bevan Williamson... A Kiwi, Phil Parkinson, Ronald Ronald Van Brook. I mean, I, I, Yorick Mori, Matan Yonkers, Tim Yonkers, his brother. You know, I got a eight or nine boys, Jason Brygoms, who's now running the Rugby League in Holland. And we set out our stall and we said, okay, let's have a, have a bash at this. And before we went to Georgia, you were actually at the game. George's first game was in the Hook of Holland. Yeah. Can you remember that? I do. I I can remember them training. Vinnie Webb was training. Vinnie Webb, exactly. I, I remember on, a, on an afternoon, I think it was a foggy afternoon for some reason in the morning, and I, I, I came across them training. Yeah, they were they were a talented team, weren't they? Oh, they were, they were, they were a, a decent enough side, mate, yeah. And that was the first time we met Georgia. And then we also played Serbia that way, that year. Um, away in Serbia and Kevin decided that Georgia, Serbia, Holland, Russia could maybe go into a World Cup qualifying group I don't think it had ever been done before I think, you know, the team's more or less put into the World Cup and that was it but all of a sudden we found ourselves in the World Cup qualifying group with Georgia, Russia and Serbia and this would be 2005, 2006. 
You're right. No, it, it was 2067 because yeah. it was the first ever qualifying for the World Cup because I remember putting it together because it was, it was a, it, you know, that was the European part of it. It actually culminated with, I think, um, you know, the, the final spot being played for between an Asia Pacific team, Samoa, I think it was, and a European team. So you were part of a big piece of a jigsaw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we, we actually kicked the World Cup off against Russia at home. Yeah. <laughs> we actually had the honour of being the first team anywhere in the world. And we also, James Howitt from Coventry, is the first man to score a try in the 2008 World Cup. A little piece of history for you there. A Dutchman. <laughs> oh, a Russia. A Russia at home. We got beat, but we went to Georgia. Uh, we'd heard of good things, big things about Georgia, you know. We'd, we'd already played them at home. We knew it was going to be difficult. But Graham, we got there, mate, and we were threat like Premier League footballers. It was absolutely tremendous. The night of the game, we had outriders, police outriders escorting the bus down to the uh, locomotive Tbilisi Stadium. Um, when we got to the stadium, it was absolutely magnificent. 15,000 people there. You know, the game was decent level. The referee, even after the game, can't remember his name now, the English referee, he said that the level was equivalent of low-level championship, top-level Division 1 in them days. Uh, and we yes. played our part, mate, but absolutely tremendous. I mean, after the game, we went through the city, and it was their Independence Day, and there were thousands and thousands of people out on the streets, and we were actually took into the square and into shoots on the stage to these thousands and thousands of Georgians there. It was an absolutely mind-boggling, amazing experience that none of the boys will ever, ever forget her, ever forget. And it's moments like that, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, Ian, that are slightly surreal when you think of where you started in the sport and all of a sudden, you know, you find yourself from, from Workington to, to Georgia. Slightly surreal as well, feeling to <laughs> Well, as I said before, Graham, I, 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 we talked earlier, I, I played high-level rugby league for nine and a half, ten years. I mean, I played against Mal Meninga when he was at St. Helens. I played against uh, Peter Sterling when he was at Hull, Knocker Norton, you know, James Lulai, played with Paul Charlton, Risman. And yet, I can honestly say that that experience in Georgia that night outdid any of my professional experience. Lancashire Cup final against Witness or anything. That night in Georgia was surreal. It was absolutely crazy. For a for a country as well that had only played one or two games of rugby league, you had to look back and think, wow, these boys can be a top teamer. They had skill, they had size, you had the apparently the crowd behind them. You know, if you get fifteen thousand people in your first home game of a World Cup. Yeah. You know, Graham, that team should have been going on to greater things. And instead, that World Cup, I don't know what happened, but it destroyed Georgia and it basically destroyed the the work in the Netherlands as well because after that, we stopped for four or five years. You know, it's strange how you can have such a great experience and then six months later, it's all gone. And that happened to both Georgia and Holland Graham on, on that time. Yeah. And before we just talk about that, there's, there's this the one maybe slightly surreal thing where I think you're, 
your wife Karen got a call from somebody high up in Georgia before. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sitting at home with the phone rings and, and uh, Karen's talking in Dutch and blah, 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 blah. And I'm trying to listen in. And she's got a big smile on the face. I'm looking at me and I thought, what's going on here? So she puts the phone down and says, who was that? What was all that about? You look happy. She says, you won't believe it. It was Sandra Roloffs. And I'm going, Sandra Roloffs? Who's Sandra Roloffs? She's a lady from Tenhausen, but she's the first lady of Georgia. I went, what? The first lady of Georgia has just phoned our house. She says, yeah, she wants to know about the game and where we're going to be, and she'd like to meet the Dutch team when we go to Tbilisi. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, this is this is getting weirder and weirder. But unfortunately, as it was, we never met Sandra Roloff because she was also the um, president of the Georgia women's basketball team. And they had, a big, they had a big tournament on that weekend, so we never actually got to meet her personally. Yeah. But, Graham, you know, th these are things that Ruby League, we didn't expect to happen in Ruby League. Yeah. Sure. Amazing. So, so you said it was, you know, six months later, obviously it was, a, you know, some more difficult times, but that's that's part of it, isn't it? You know, it, 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 any club will go through, you know, however long they've been around for five years or a hundred years, they'll have good phases and bad phases, same with nations. And of course, you know, there's there's Hollanders are still going, you know, and, what, you know, if you're starting around about 2002 yourself, you, and then you, you're coming up for 20 years. What what do you, what do you look back as the the proudest thing about it for you and your journey? Actually, get 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 the game played, game. You know, it, it's still going now, and Jason and them uh, have now got. A, well, it should have been a five team tournament this year, but due to the coronavirus, it was cancelled. You know, and. They've been steady building for the last five years. They've actually got a club competition going. Uh, Kane Kruitz is now the the Netherlands coach and the national side of structure and starting to, to get back together and playing well against, you know, teams of their level. And when you look back, you, you've got to look back and think, well, what we done back in 2002, 2003 from getting battered in York 9s then going all the way to Tbilisi, then dropping off the scene, then Jason taking it back on and saying, I'm not going to let this die. I want to keep it going. I mean, that, that proves that the game can survive against all adversity. And, yeah, I, I, I look back and I, I'm proud of what we achieved. I remember you talking to Kevin on the first podcast and you were saying the Scotland students were basically a team for going on tour, spreading the word and having a good time. And I can look back in the 2004 to 2006, you know, our boys were playing three or four internationals a year, Georgia, Czech Republic, Serbia, but we were having fun. Game, and that's important. Yeah? We were having fun, mate. Kevin Rudd once said to me, Tomo, you've got the best pub team in Europe. <laughs> but we were also competitive. So yeah. to look to look back, Graham, 2002, me and Stuart Webster from from uh, Doodley Hill got together over a pint in Dan Haag, started a rugby team in Teverva, and there you go now. 
20 years, 22 years later, Jason's got a structure going, five five domestic clubs going, playing regularly in European internationals. And yeah, he's got to start somewhere. And I can look back and say, yeah, I, I'm proud I had a, an input into it. And all the people we've met over the way, over the years, Graham, you know, I, I now go down to Australia due to the fact that Aaron Diego, a guy from the Wollongong region, came to play Holland. And these, these are friendships you get for life, you know. Same as, sadly, Simon Cooper, you know, met him through rugby league, friends you make for life. You know, Kevin Rudd, even though we had our, our dispute, a lot of respect for what Kevin done. And these are friends for life, Graham, and it's all through the name of rugby league, mate. Eh? And I think that speaks to, you know, you talked about, you know, rugby union players, anybody discovering rugby league and loving the sport. But there's other reasons why people play sports. It's about what they get out of it socially. It could be their identity, status, but it's also about relationships, isn't it? You know, so so to hear about those ongoing friendships, uh, you know, and how much they mean, it's it's another way to get people involved, that they're going to get that, not just the playing legacy, but they'll get their friendships legacy out of it. Well, that's important, isn't it? Friends for life, could I? Honest, mate, I mean, I, Facebook now is an amazing thing, if you're right. And I talk to guys that, because we're spread all over the world, you know, you never, you never ever keep in contact if it wasn't through sport. I'd, it, it's amazing what, what friendships come through, rugby league, Graham. You know, Bevan's back in New Zealand now, Aaron's back in Australia, Johnny Quar's back in Ireland, Big Ron Banerbrook's in England, Rudy Stanford smiths now living in Norway. But we all have the common bond. We all played or we all had part of building rugby league up in the Netherlands. And we still talk about it to this day. We yeah. do. We, we still go back and look back of the good times we had there. And yet, in other aspects of life, you 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 don't seem to you don't seem to do that. You, but for some reason, sport and especially rugby league, you can talk about it forever and ever and ever, mate. And it never gets bored. It never gets bored on Well, tell you what, Ian, we've certainly not been bored in the last day, last forty minutes, and it's it's been great um, to reminisce with you and to hear about your journey, what you achieved. And you're right, we could go on for, for, for a long time. <laughs> without, without a doubt, I know that. But listen, th- thank you. Thank you for offering that insight. You know, again, as one of the founding figures and just that desire that you wanted, as you said, you know, you, you got a lot from rugby league, so you wanted to give back. And that's exactly. just a, a wonderful philosophy. And and, and uh, lots of people in Holland have, have got introduced to rugby league. And of course, we've talked to many people like you, including Simon, who've done that across Europe. So thanks, Ian, from, for joining us. Uh, been fantastic thank you very my, much my pleasure Graham appreciate what you put, let us do cheers mate take care thank you so folks that uh, wraps up uh, the podcast for this week um, again we're seeing more rugby league beginning to be played that's great fantastic but in the meantime please stay safe and healthy 